Welcome to the podcast on emerging leadership. I'm Alexis Monville. Today, we are joined by Daniel Rick, who works on special projects and strategy at Red Hat. His previous roles include leading Red Hat AI on Center of Excellence, managing cross-product integration engineering, leading Red Hat Enterprise Linux product management, and multiple startups, including ID Pro, one of Europe's first open-source service providers. Daniel has spent most of his career in open source space, and today we will discuss the future of open source in the cloud era, and how individuals and leaders can support open source and ensure that it remains accessible and open. For those who may not familiar with the term, Daniel, could you explain what open source is and why it's important? Of course. So I actually prefer slightly the term free software, which It's not about free as in no cost. It's about free as in freedom, right? So free software, which is software that allows you to change the software, understand how it works, improve it, and redistribute changed versions of the software. And open source is basically just a marketing term for the same thing. Often we refer to free and open source software to combine them. I use them largely synonymously, but the point is it's about empowering the people who use software and give them the right to understand the software, adapt it to their needs, improve it, and redistribute, collaborate on the software. So it's really about sovereignty in technology. It's about controlling the technology that defines your life. Okay. Really interesting. So in a very interesting talk at FOSDEM, you've spoken about the challenges facing open source in the cloud era. Could you tell us more about these challenges and why they are important for those in the tech industry to be aware of and why people outside of the tech industry maybe should care? Right. So as I said, free software is about empowering you to control the technology. And everyone is probably aware more and more of our life is defined by software. An example I often use is a connected mousetrap I have in my basement, right, which does a very traditional task. It's a mousetrap, but now it's connected to the internet. So it, it talks to my local Wi-Fi network and then talks to a cloud server and then notifies an app on my phone when it did what it does, which has a huge advantage, right? It, it avoids me finding things weeks later in the basement. Right, so it's really useful, and I bought that mousetrap, right, which is a very physical, very mechanical thing. I bought that because of that software feature. So you can do the same. Like my light switches in my house are all small microcontrollers; they're all small computers running software and talk to each other, and through some home home automation, talk to the internet. Right, so so everything our world is defined by software, and basically everyone is exposed to that to some degree. Every business definitely is exposed to that. And more and more businesses differentiate through software features in their supply chain, in their internal organization, in their customer interactions, and progressively even in their products, such as mousetraps that traditionally were very, very mechanical. So we often say software is eating the world. So I, I say software ate the world, right? So it's everything is is software and logic is done in software. Our interactions with the world are with software. And because we control our physical world with software, the software complexity is approaching the complexity of the physical world. Right? It's no surprise there. 
And part of that, of course, is that things need to be always connected. It means that there's more and more software and a paradigm that really came along with that expansion. And you can argue about cause and effect, but I think they just co-evolved is the concept of cloud computing, which I would define as the mixture of an operational paradigm. How do you run your software and the underlying infrastructure that's optimized for developer velocity so you can keep building software without having to stop for things that are underlying dependencies, whether that is infrastructure, like a computer you need to run on, a network connection or a service like a database. So you compose your software and you try not to stop for underlying or have your developers stop for underlying infrastructure. So developer velocity. The second part is operational excellence. You want, because if your business or your world or your house depends on software running, right, you don't want to have any kind of operational fragility. You want your, your software always to run and you want the best practices that are the common in what everyone does. You want that to be applied to how your software runs. Because if even if you cannot have a positive differentiation from optimizing things because you're just doing something that's very mundane, running a web service or something, you still would have a disadvantage if you weren't doing it as well as your competitors, right? So you want the operational excellence, the best practices embedded in how your stuff is run, how your underlying services and infrastructure is run. And lastly, you want elasticity, which means that you can increase or decrease your usage dynamically, so at any time. So if you have, for example, a sale, a new product launch, and you expect a lot of traffic, you want to the ability of your services to scale up. And then when you don't need that anymore, you don't want to keep paying for services you don't need anymore. So that's what we call elasticity. So things can grow and can reduce as needed. Mm-hmm. Right. So, And that is really what cloud is about. It's an, a paradigm that gives you a software architecture and infrastructure that supports maximizing developer velocity. So you never have to stop when you create your own stuff. It embeds the operational excellence, best practices, and it's elastic. And in most people know someone like Amazon or Google or Microsoft, Azure and Asia, Alibaba, and you know, that are the big cloud vendors. IBM is a cloud vendor. Oracle is a cloud vendor. So these are companies that provide that kind of infrastructure. And there are many smaller ones. Even people running their own data center want to run them in this paradigm. So the goal is to support modern software and your dependencies by running your software in the cloud paradigm. Yeah, so Daniel, if everything around us is defined by software and we have that great capability of cloud that is, as you said, optimized for developer velocity, we have operational excellence, so things can continue to run always, and we have elasticity, so we don't pay for what we don't need, so we pay only for what we need, and we can increase our, our capacity. That's Absolutely perfect. So why there are challenges for open source? Yeah, that's really interesting. So first of all, everything that people do in the cloud nowadays is built on top of open source. All the major clouds use open source. They're usually based on GNU Linux as the operating system, open source virtualization technology that's in Linux like KVM. 
on container concepts like Portman and Docker and orchestration tools like Kubernetes. So it's a lot of open source in there. But the place where open source is successful right now is the common base of what I code at rest. So software, program code that sits in a repository or is a binary that you can take and run when you need it. And that's what most of the cloud vendors use. That's what the cloud services are built higher. So if you have a database in there that has usually, for most of them, strong open source bases. And even most of what like any user does nowadays is built on the foundation of open source code. So people build their own business differentiation in software, right? For example, let's stick with the example. If I build this control stack for a connected mousetrap, right? There's a lot of open source in there, both on the device itself. Some of the pieces in the microcontroller are open source libraries. You can basically assume that because it's most of, most of the common underlying software. The middleware that they use to talk through the internet is based on open source and the parts on, on your mobile phone are also include open source libraries. And you can verify that if you go on your mobile phone to the settings, you will find somewhere, even for the mobile phone operating system itself, you'll find somewhere a menu button about the open source licenses that they have to list, right? So you'll find it, you can verify that. Now, the issue is that when you, as I said earlier, like cloud is all about things running, right? It's about elasticity and developer velocity and operational excellence. So the point is operationalizing software. And in fact, operationalizing open source software is the biggest differentiator for any kind of cloud vendor or people who provide software as a service. Even you know, in some cases, they take the same open source code that's publicly available, but they know how to run it with that operational excellence. And that becomes suddenly a proprietary differentiator. You know, It includes uh, knowing how to make it scale, how to run it, how to configure it securely, how to keep it secure against attacks, you know, which is a, is a common problem, right? Software, software gets attacked directly or through supply chain issues, right? And if you don't have the right process in place and you download random open source software from the internet, there's a risk in that, right? And so the cloud providers have these processes nailed down. And so taking open source software and actually running it kind of as cloud-grade, enterprise-grade software is suddenly a proprietary thing. And that obviously creates a conflict because now the point of open source software, of like I want to empower people to be in control of their technology, I want to provide freedom, is running up against the problem of actually running the software now being a proprietary feature. Okay, so the point of open source was that freedom and that control. And if you have a software that is really open source, but if you don't know how it's run, then you don't have that freedom and you don't have that control anymore. So that's the problem. That's the first problem. There's another problem that is kind of a second degree problem. And that is, but I want to mention that I know it's a lot of problems <laughs> we're talking about, but I think it's important to, to also mention the second one, which the first one, I think it becomes very obvious as soon as you try to do this, right? Like people, their problem is, is a common discussion in the open source industry or whether that's on the, on the activist side or even in business is that even people who do a lot of open source, for example, don't run their own mail servers anymore because 
of the complexities of running it securely, keeping it operational, protecting it, or even being able to get your mail accepted by other services that, you know, kind of the way it's used is not as free as the underlying code anymore, right? They just don't accept mail from people they don't know anymore. So that's pretty, that becomes pretty obvious that like, oh, I have this open source software, but I don't know how to run it, or I, at least not as securely as at that scale or as well, you know, as performant as. Yeah, that's, that's true. I gave up on running my own mail server when all my mails was, were going nowhere. <laughs> I, I gave up and I used the service and then some of my mail were reaching their destination. That sounds like a small problem, but it's a symptom, right, of the bigger problem, which is really in the same point. And one other problem that then kind of compounds that is that because if you do cloud-native development, right, the point is of cloud is to abstract from underlying complexity so you can focus on the core where you want to differentiate, right? Like if you're a business, you want to implement your business differentiation in software, and all the things that are not differentiating for you, that are just the requirements that you have, that you know, like a database, right? For most businesses, they just need a database that's as good as a database that everyone else is using. But having a better database probably is not going to help you sell more of your product in most cases, right? So you want to focus on your application that uses the database. You don't want to spend your time on figuring out how to run the database. The same is true for open source projects. If I'm doing an open source project, I want to focus on the core of my project. Like, let's say it's, an, it's home assistant, it's home automation software, right? I want to figure out how to do the best home automation. I don't want to have to figure out how to run the underlying service to provide that. And because those services in the cloud are run as a proprietary concept, you now, as an open source project, have two choices. Either you start depending on proprietary black box services that you don't you can't look into and you can't control, or you have to run all of it on your own, right? And that creates a fundamental disadvantage for open source projects when they try to develop in a cloud-native way, means they benefit from all the greatness of the cloud paradigm. They either have to do it themselves, figure out the operational excellence, or depend on a proprietary service and thereby undermine the whole point of open source, even when they create code, right? And that, that creates kind of a, a downward spiral of open source value when your open source development itself starts depending on proprietary approach. And a great example here is, uh, is GitHub, right? Most open source projects use GitHub, which is an awesome service, which gives you management for your source code, management of collaboration, issue management, CI management, more and more integrations, now an AI bot that helps you write code. It's built on open source software, right? It's in the name, Git. Git is an open source project created by Linus Torvalds, the same person who created Linux. But the service itself, the glue code, all the differentiate, everything that makes it such a great tool other than the core open source code underneath, Git, Everything else is proprietary. So the moment you use GitHub, you have built this kind of proprietary dependency in your open source code. And you, you know, and it's not GitHub is actually owned by Microsoft. So I, I don't know, for people who have like a long history in open source, Microsoft was always they've changed obviously to some degree, but they were always like they called open source a cancer 
back in the day. <laughs> so they were very anti-open source. And now most open source projects, at least in you know, their ongoing practice, depend on the Microsoft service to keep building and managing their source code. Yeah. Interesting dependency on, on the challenges of open source. So if we want to escape that downward spiral that you mentioned, what can we do about it? So ultimately, like on a high level, I think that we need to expand the concept of open source from code, you know, code in a repository and the code license to include operationalizing the code. That means two things, right? One is like, and it's not going to be the same for every open source project, but ultimately open source projects should include in their project charter running their software as a service or as part of a service and with the goal to enable other open source projects to then build on that service in a cloud native model so that you create the same kind of development approach that you have in the proprietary world where people can aggregate existing services and come together and, and create this, you know, creates an exponential growth rate, right? Because you can build on top of all the things that other people have done, which in open source, you do that kind of on the code level, right? I reuse libraries, but if applicable, I should be able to reuse an existing server and then create a virtuous cycle of open source, right? It's what we call this contribution cycle where people come together and contribute to open source projects to bring them forward, expand that to similar cloud native concept of things running and then other things aggregating beyond just the code in a repository. Wow. What's the first step to do that? That depends a little bit. They're different. I think there are different approaches for different projects that will be taken and there are a bunch of ongoing things. I think one key point is starting to there's awareness, right? We need open source projects to be aware, aware of the problems, aware of the dependencies. I think we need to get a push towards decentralization. That's an interesting topic. Part of the problem, part of the benefit of clouds that how people consume it today kind of co-evolves with the increasing centralization so people move to the same thing which is part like it increases the benefit for keeping things proprietary for that centralized entity right and increases these dependencies on very few entities so a decentralized approach automatically counters that and we've seen that in a different space right like if you look at the twitter situation a lot of people have decided that twitter for this or that reason isn't a great platform anymore. It's too centralized. And many people don't agree with the approach of the previous or current ownership and whatever. I don't want to get into that issue. The structure, the point though, is people have a problem with this one centralized platform being the one place where everyone comes together, having to submit to their rules and not being able to have sovereignty over your own content, right? And the answer that kind of is a front answer right now, interestingly, is a project called Mastodon, which is an open source project with a decentralized approach, right, where everyone can run their own social media instance of Mastodon. You know, it, it is the true open source project. It already has this concept of running it as part of the project. And there are many people not, you know, so it's not just code in a repository. The people involved in the project themselves are also running instances of it. And everyone can go and run it 
it's easy to run because it's part of the project. And then you just connect, you negotiate with others to connect to them. So you create a decentralized social network of people running their own instances of Mastodon. So that's a great example of an open source project that has cloud native operationalization as part of the content. I'm sure it could be improved, but but it you know it obviously is working to some degree because a lot of people are now using Mastodon and it's evolving fast to be an alternative to centralized social media platforms. So that's a great example, right? It comes down to expanding the project scope to include operationalizing, so running the software as a service, and a decentralized approach, which means that many people can run it and you somehow bring that together to create a joint benefit and growth and collaboration on top of that. Excellent. So awareness of dependencies, running your project as a service, and thinking of decentralization, so avoid that effect of centralization that will <laughs> that will put you in that trap of uh, building things proprietary. Okay. That sounds something people can do. The question would be next, why they are not all doing it, but uh, Mastodon is a good example. So let's, uh, let's go with that. What are, your, from your perspective, the, the key leadership traits and skills needed to succeed in open source in that cloud era and to make that happen? That's a hard one, right? Because so now I'm I'm looking at a crystal ball, and it's very much like it's my opinion, <laughs> not and it's not based on experience because it like it's an ongoing struggle, and you know it's interesting. Like open source as a concept for code at rest, like has won, right? It's it's the standard base for everything. So and it has proven that it's the most efficient way of creating and maintaining the underlying common code that everyone needs, but that no one can actually differentiate on. And we have also proven that you can create, you can professionalize that and create businesses around that without compromising the underlying concept. Like I work at Red Hat, as you introduced me, and uh, that's what Red Hat does. Red Hat has a subscription business model that is fully compliant with the concept of open source. Obviously, selling the, similar to how cloud is kind of about the embedded best practices, right? Red Hat's business model is the best practice of maintaining enterprise-grade open source and, and increasingly cloud-grade open source code for business users. There's a huge benefit for everyone, right? It, it benefits everyone because it's complying with the open source model and contributing back. It is also collaborative with everyone else in the space, usually Red Hat does not solve problems on its own. It's always in collaboration, even with competitors, because it's this common underlying base, right? So that works really well, and that's proven by the what I call the, the normative power of the factual, right? It, it taken over the software industry. So there is proprietary software, but that's usually kind of close to the customer use case, you know, ultimately what customers implement themselves, usually they keep proprietary because that's their business differentiation. But as soon as you get like one, two levels down, you get into common services. And I think, so my prediction is that that would be, that model can be expanded to services, right, with a decentralized approach. Um, and I think a key leadership skill is like, it, it's 
understanding the benefit of open source. And I have kind of two minds there, right? Like in my private life, I'm it's something like a conviction that I want to be in charge of my own technology. And I want to be, I, so I, I use open source even when it's not necessarily convenient, right? But if you go into the business side, I have a more utilitarian view on that, right? I want to do open source so it benefits me. And I think, so I think understanding that it's okay to kind of have a little bit of a conviction sometimes, but you need to make it serve your primary goal, right? I, I think if you if you do open source and it harms your business, it's not going to be sustainable. So you have to find, and, and that's why I think that's a business leadership skill to find the synergy. Where is open source really useful for me? Which aspects of this are critical for me? Think strategically, think about my dependencies, think about how I want to have control and sustainability and sovereignty so I don't get into dependencies that harm my business and then focus on those areas, right? So I think that is that is the key leadership skill that people need to develop. And it's not, in a way, that's the same for traditional open source, for coded REST, right? It's just expanding that to not accept, for example, for cloud services, things that you wouldn't accept for coded REST. I like what you said about conviction. And it's a, there's a, there's some people are saying you don't want to leave your principles behind for convenience reasons, but there's a good, the line is probably blurry. And there's probably a limit that you you cannot overpass that, and uh, that's a that's interesting to to be aware of that. If you look at the cycles in the tech industry, it's always a little bit of pendulum swinging back and forth between concepts, right? You always have, for example, a trend to centralization, right? The mainframe, right? Then we had the PC, then we got the cloud, which turned back into centralization. Like some people say, it is just it's just a reinvention of the mainframe, right? Like it's a black box services running on someone else's leased hardware that you pay by the hour. It's really convenient. I use it for certain things. I use traditional data center approaches for other things, still like in a cloud native mindset, but sometimes it's better to buy the hardware and not to run pay by the hour because you're always utilizing it, right? So you have to, and I think we see right now and we had a huge expansion. There is an economic crisis going on. And we see a lot of people reconsidering that, going into cost control mode and suddenly reducing their cloud spend or even rediscovering their data center. We have other trends like Edge, or you know, which comes from software defining the world. Now you software needs to move close to the data sources and interaction points, right? Um, the classic example is a self-driving car. Self-driving car needs to take decisions locally because it, it, it has to ask the cloud. It will fail to break in time, right? <laughs> so it has to take the decision locally. So you need local compute power. And so suddenly you, you already need a decentralized approach there, right? And so it, it comes, leadership there also comes back to, you know, looking at the trends and the requirements, honestly, reconsidering decisions, reconsidering the trends and doing a, making your own choices informed uh, based on a mix of strategy and principles and uh, immediate needs. Excellent. And uh, among those are that understanding of dependencies, 
that understanding of centralization, decentralization, and that understanding of the difference between a software product and a service itself and how it runs. It's really fantastic, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights on the future of open source and the cloud. I should have said first, free and open source software. You're right. Your experience and expertise in this field are truly valuable and inspiring to emerging leaders in the tech industry and everywhere else. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Alex.